And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a bi-weekly discussion program of all things political coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio. My name is Bill Templeman. Tonight, we're going to listen to a recording of a talk given by journalist and researcher Gwyn Dyer on climate change. Now, Dyer gave a similar talk last Monday, the 11th, at uh, Trent University. That talk has not yet been uploaded as a podcast. However, the talk you're going to hear tonight was recorded at Harvard University back in 2012. Uh, the subject matter is largely the same as his talk that certainly I heard on at Trent last week. Now, why is Gwyn Dyer is important? His resume is indeed impressive. Uh, he got a Master's of Art in uh, Military History from Rice University in Houston and a Doctor of Philosophy, his PhD in Military and Middle East History uh, at King's College London in 1973. He served in the Canadian, American and British Naval Reserves and he was employed as a senior lecturer in war studies at the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. In 73, he began writing articles for leading London newspapers on the Arab-Israeli conflict and soon decided to abandon academic life for a full-time career in journalism. Now, I have incredible respect for this decision because it's like it would be like leaving uh, a luxury liner or at least an aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic and jumping into a canoe in terms of career stability. However, he's made a, a serious go of it and is very successful. He pursued a career as a full-time journalist. His column on international affairs is published in over 175 newspapers in at least 45 countries. In 2010, he was appointed as an officer of the Order of Canada. So, Gwyn Dyer on climate change. Some of you may know I'm a journalist. I wrote a column on international affairs. And uh, so I've got the attention span of a butterfly, which is what you need to be a columnist. Hop from one subject to the other, 875 words and out. But once in a while, I run across something that warrants a bit more attention. And that's what happened to me about three years ago in Washington. I go there several times a year just to figure out what they're up to. It's a requirement of the job. I was staying with an old friend who's worked most of his life in the intelligence world, and uh, he just dropped into the conversation his recent discovery that the Pentagon, particularly precisely the Joint Chiefs of Staff, were getting interested in climate change. So I said, why? And he said, I don't know, but here's some people there you might talk to, which I did. And as long as you didn't mention their names, they were quite happy to talk. Uh, This was, of course, under uh, Mr. Bush's administration, so... It was definitely not a good career move to talk about it out loud, um, but the military are always looking forward to det- – well, the nice way of putting it is to detect emerging threats to security. The less nice way is to say to find the next job to justify the existing budget. And uh, whichever it was, they were deeply involved in thinking about climate change and what jobs it would provide to them. So having – sort of stumbled across that in Washington, I went back to London, and lo and behold, the British military were up to their ears in it as well. In fact, that is where I first heard the word lifeboat, the phrase, lifeboat Britain. Lifeboat Britain being, it turned out, 
shorthand for a country that in the general ruin of global warming is going to get off relatively lightly because it's surrounded by the ocean and mostly reasonably arable land. And so you could just barely hope to feed 65 million people off that island. Um, they wouldn't be eating much meat. But as in all lifeboats, uh, the condition of survival is that you don't overload it. You don't let too many people scramble aboard. Think Titanic. And uh, so already in this is what, you know, 2008, they're thinking about 2030, let us say, when um, not only Africa but the northern side of the Mediterranean are beginning to produce large numbers of climate refugees because the Mediterranean gets hit very hard and working out how best to pull the drawbridge up. So we've got a live one here, subject-wise, and I really threw myself into it and, you know, did a radio series, wrote a book, and I'm still deeply involved in it. But here's what I learned, and I'll try to give it in summary form because we've wasted enough of your time already. Basically, four things. First of all, of course, I began talking to the scientists as well as to uh, the generals. Um, recently retired generals are wonderful value, by the way. They're suffering severe decompression. Nobody wants to talk to them anymore. So if you ring them up, they're very happy to talk to you. And they're fairly up to date on what's going on. But also to the scientists, I visited the uh, Boulder, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, and talked to a couple of dozen people there, Hadley Center in England, and the Potsdam Institute in Germany, which are probably the three premier sites for government-funded research on climate change on the planet. And what was very striking in my conversations with the scientists was the current undercurrent of suppressed panic in many of the conversations. They're beginning to talk more openly about it now, but it's still not really out there. The general view among the scientists I've talked to, and you'd recognize a good many of the names, I suspect, is that we are going to go through 450 parts per million, through 2 degrees Celsius, which is, by common consent, including our government's consent, the point of no return. That is to say, the point at which we lose control of the warming process. Up to there, our emissions are causing the warming, so it is within our power, at least theoretically, to stop the warming by stopping the emissions. Now, I know it's not easy, but it's possible. Once you go past two degrees, you hit the feedbacks, which is to say natural systems triggered by the warming, which begin to put carbon dioxide, methane, other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as well, particularly permafrost melting and warmer oceans giving up some of the carbon dioxide they absorbed early in their, earlier in their history. So essentially, past two degrees, you lose control. And you have no idea where this escalator is taking you. It may be taking you up through three, four, five degrees, six degrees, which is mass death. And so you must not go past two, but the consensus was we almost certainly will. We're at 395 parts per million now. 450 is more or less. These are fuzzy numbers. 450 equates to two degrees Celsius higher average global temperature. And until the recent recession hit, we were going up at three parts per million a year. So you're there in 20 years.
barring drastic changes in our emission pattern in the next 20 years, none of which seems highly likely, particularly after the shambles in Copenhagen last December. So an undercurrent of panic in the conversations. And the military are aware of this. The military are talking to the scientists all the time. I'll drop a couple of names into the conversation. Jim Lovelock, for example, is flown to the Pentagon several times a year to talk to them. Amory Lovins is there practically all the time. He's doing the long march through the institutions. And um, Jim Hansen also talks to them. He's respected much more by them than he is by his own bosses. They're paying attention. And the problem with even two degrees is that it is an average global temperature which in practical terms is almost always higher when you come to the land surface temperatures produced by an average global temperature of two degrees. Two-thirds of the world is oceans. Oceans invariably are cooler than the land surface of the planet except in the high Arctic. So an average global temperature of two degrees warmer is in fact three or more degrees warmer over land. The Hadley Center, just before um, the uh, Copenhagen conference last December, published an estimate, and they were going, I suspect, against the wishes of the British government, which does pay their budget, published an estimate of where we will be in 2060, 50 years from now. And their estimate was that, not on a business-as-usual basis, but on on reasonably robust assumptions about how much we cut our emissions, how fast, a politically realistic assessment, uh, they said 4 degrees Celsius average global temperature by 2060. And they published a map. And the map showed what that translated into in terms of average land temperature rise in various parts of the world. You'll be pleased to know that Massachusetts is only five and a half degrees Celsius warmer. So you might be able to grow something. But the interior of all the continents, including all of the United States more than 200 miles away from the coasts, is seven degrees hotter. Seven degrees Celsius, 12 degrees Fahrenheit in 2060 on current policy trajectories. So they're scared. And the military look at this and they draw the following conclusion. And this is second conclusion. The military look at this and they think, if that's going to happen or even some of it happens the major impact is going to be on the food supply, and all of our problems are going to come from a rapid loss of food supply in a planet which is still rather slowly now, but still growing in population. There is very little slack in the system, unless we all go vegetarian, in which case you get about a 20% bonus. But otherwise, there's no slack in the system. Look what happened when you had the fires in Russia this summer, 30% of the Russian wheat crop gone, well, big, but you wouldn't think enormous, and yet wheat grain prices already 
are going up very rapidly and may spike as high as they did two years ago when we had similar local events cutting into global supply by perhaps 5%. But panic. There isn't 5% slack. So the problems as the military sees them are problems of the food supply. Three principal consequences of growing shortages of food. One, waves of refugees coming out of the parts of the world that are more deeply affected by these losses, by the global warming, by the loss of food supply. The closer you are to the equator, the more it's going to hurt. Far enough away from the equator, like England, for example, and you may have a chance of going on feeding yourself at four degrees hotter, but you don't have any chance in Mexico. The tropics and the subtropics get absolutely hammered. The, the process that cuts the food supply in the tropics essentially is simply added heat because most of the major tropical food crops, or rather most of the major food crops grown in the, in the tropics, are not tropical plants. They are plants transplanted from the uh, uh, cooler parts of the planet, mostly from the subtropics or even the temperate zone. Rice was domesticated in south-central China, which is about the same latitude as North Carolina. So it's right at the top of its temperature tolerance range when you grow it in the tropics. Rice will not germinate if it's 35 degrees for more than about 24 hours during the key three-week period when you actually get the formation of the grains of rice. And in the subtropics, the problem is loss of rainfall. It's a dry part of the world anyway, enough rain for one major grain crop a year in most of it. Winter rain, summer dry the whole Mediterranean climate thing, um, and you lose about half the rainfall. And so you're not growing those wheat crops anymore. You're seeing this in Australia now, by the way. Australia is the canary in the coal mine because it's the uh, driest continent, and you're probably aware that Australia is exporting virtually no grain this year, though it was the second largest grain exporter, wheat exporter in the world only 10 years ago. The center of Australia, the, the wheat growing in inland empire in Australia is basically shutting down. So you get waves of refugees from countries that cannot feed themselves, desperate people willing to do anything to find themselves in a place where there is food or work that they could buy food with. The United States Army looks at this and says, our major problem is Mexico. Mexico and Central America where we are going to be ordered by Congress, they reckon, in the next 10 to 15 years, to close the border for real. It is, of course, pretend closed at the moment. They catch some, they let some go, and the ones they catch and send back come across again next week. This keeps American agribusiness supplied with cheap stoop labor, and it's a useful safety valve in terms of political pressures in Mexico, a stabilizing factor. And that is a sustainable policy, if not an admissible one. They don't admit it, they just do it. So long as uh, the numbers are, let's say, below a million a year actually coming through. But if Mexico and Central America get hammered by global warming, which they will do, then those numbers will triple, uh, quadruple, quintuple. 
And at that point, popular opinion in the United States is going to say enough, and Congress will order the U.S. Army to close the border. The Pentagon is convinced this will happen in the next 10 or 15 years. They can, of course, do it. It's sheer poppycock that you can't seal a 2,000-mile border, though we're told it all the time. Two words, Iron Curtain. It can be done, but you have to be willing to kill people. That's the dirty little secret. Don't have to kill a lot of people because the word gets round. But you've got to be willing to kill people in order to really seal a border. The United States Army is not, I think, professionally or philosophically opposed to killing people. But it does understand that actions have consequences. It's very interesting when you talk to officers who have been involved in in internal discussions about what do we do about the Mexican border, they actually think another step ahead. Yes, of course, we can close the border. Yes, we will have to kill people. And what will that do to domestic politics in the United States, given that by the time it happens, about 20% of the American population will be of relatively recent Mexican and Central American descent? Most of them legal citizens, but how are they going to feel when they see what you might call, you know, spiritual relatives being shot down on the American-Mexican frontier? One colonel said to me he thought that this would cause the severest, let me get the phrase right, he said he thought it would cause the severest tensions in the United States since the Civil War. They'll do it if they're ordered to, but they're not actually straining at the uh, leash on this one. The second implication of loss of food supply is failed states. Governments that cannot feed their populations do not, on the whole, survive very long. And so we may expect a proliferation of failed states, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, where they're pretty close to failed in some cases anyway, and consequent uh, military expeditions to safeguard resources in those places. The rest of them can go hang. And, of course, again, you know, a rise in terrorism, piracy, all that sort of stuff, stuff that will provide the military with some work. Finally, we may expect to see interstate wars where countries have to share the same river system. Now, we're getting there on the Nile as it is without global warming. And I reckon that Iraq would be at war with Turkey today if Iraq wasn't flat on its back because the Turks basically have shut off the Euphrates. They built 12 enormous dams in eastern Anatolia, and they're filling the reservoirs and using them for power. And the Euphrates, one of the two rivers of Mesopotamia, is basically dry this year and alcohol is sh- uh, alcohol agriculture you can see I desperately need a drink um, agriculture has basically shut down in western Iraq this year now Iraq can get through this because it's got oil and it can buy food in but uh, a lot of countries aren't in that position also of course run this down the road 20 or 30 years and there's very little market for international grain market left. I mean, the, the countries that used to furnish it are half of them out of the exporting business. So wars, the worst, the most dangerous, the most frightening being along the Indus River, 
shared by India and Pakistan, but it all runs through India before it reaches Pakistan. I won't go into the gory details unless you ask me to afterwards, but uh, both the Indian and the Pakistani general staffs are looking at what's likely to happen when the Indus is about half the volume it is now because it's glacier-fed and the glaciers that feed it are melting. So when, it's, when the water is scarce, and it's all being used now, the Indus doesn't reach the sea, um, and when it's down to half, uh, the issue of sharing what's left is going to be very difficult to, to address and could well cause a war between, you will recall, nuclear powers. So that's the military dimension in a very small nutshell. Failed states, interstate wars, particularly in uh, countries that share the same river system, and refugees, refugees, refugees. European Union is looking at this, of course, coming out of Africa and the Middle East. The Australians are looking at it coming south out of, Manila, out of, out of the Philippines and Indonesia. The Russians are looking at China. They're always paranoid about China, but now they're super paranoid about China. And certain, not military dispositions, but military plans are always already being made. Interesting little byplay here inside the European Union, where there is currently freedom of movement for all citizens of the older members of the European Union, the so-called Schengen Treaty. So if you're Italian and you feel like moving to Sweden and setting up in business there, you don't have to ask anybody's permission. Is that going to survive when all of the Mediterranean members of the European Union are suffering immense losses in food production and general discomfort and probably loss of power as well because their hydro is not working anymore in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, and the Balkans? When a lot of them start heading north, I think the same issue crops up. I don't. I think the Schengen Treaty's got maybe 10 or 15 years to run. But the European North, Northern Europeans are like anybody else, willing to accept incomers in a, in moderate numbers. You know, if, you, if the Netherlands gets a half a million Italians, it means better food. But if the Netherlands gets three or four million Italians. It means virtual civil war, and it's never going to accept that. I was in the Netherlands recently, and already this is being discussed by the Dutch. So the European Union is liable either to shrink or at least to go two-tier, and the North will send the South food aid so long as it can, but it won't let the Southerners come north. Enough of that. Let us move on to the third conclusion. The third conclusion is that when we go through two degrees, which we will, there is a way to cheat. And you, two years, three years, three years ago, you couldn't find any reputable scientists who would talk about geoengineering. Now they are coming out of the closet in droves. I went to a conference in uh, California, Monterey, last March. First ever conference of people working with geoengineering. 200 scientists from very respectable institutes there who were meeting not to discuss their work, which they do all the time, but to discuss setting up 
a governance regime for research and experimentation in climate change, in, in geoengineering to fight climate change. Geoengineering is vilified, of course, by those who argue with some justice that we have screwed the climate up with everything else we have done. How dare we imagine that we can now fix it by further intervention? But when the situation is that if you leave it alone, you lose, and you lose drastically and quite possibly permanently, then other options must be considered. And that's where the scientists are right now. Many, many of them. I would say that of the scientists I've mentioned and, and others I've talked to, the large majority are willing to countenance um, experimentation in geoengineering because the alternative is we lose. Geoengineering comes in various flavors. The one that got most attention earliest was a proposal uh, to put sulfur dioxide, basically, um, into the stratosphere to form a kind of sunscreen that would diminish the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth's surface. Not, not enough to cause darkness at noon. Arthur Kessler can rest easy. But um, enough to cut incoming sunlight by 1 or 2 percent and therefore hold the temperature rise below 2 degrees even though we have passed through the 450 parts per million that normally would give you two degrees. Um, this is uh, horrifying stuff in a sense. I mean, you know, we've polluted the rest of the planet. I know, let's pollute the stratosphere. But actually, the amounts involved are not enormous. It would involve something like a twentieth as much sulfur dioxide as we dump into the lower atmosphere every week, the troposphere. And you don't have to keep dumping it because in the stratosphere it doesn't wash out. There's no rain. There's no weather. So you put it up there and it'll stay about two years on average. So you don't have to continuously replenish. Um, what happens that basically is the sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere under the impact of sunlight changes into tiny droplets of sulfur, sulfuric acid, which reflect a lot of sunlight, and, and therefore you get a diminished amount of sunlight reaching the surface. doesn't turn the sky yellow, doesn't result in anything like the amount of acid rain we get out of what we normally do in the lower atmosphere, the one question that was on everybody's minds uh, was, what does it do to the ozone hole? Uh, but the guy who proposed it was actually the guy who got the, the uh, Nobel Prize for his work on the ozone hole, and he says, it'll be okay. Solar radiation management is a catchphrase, SRM. You'll be hearing it, I imagine, within a year. Most geoengineering techniques are SRM. Another one, more popular among those who are a bit too sensitive to go with the uh, initial, the sulfur dioxide model. By the way, the way you get sulfur dioxide up there is you simply use inter, uh, the, the mid-air refueling aircraft the Air Force already has got. You substitute, you know, pressurized tanks of sulfur dioxide for the tanks of uh, aviation fuel, and somebody costed it a dozen aircraft, three sorties a day, one year, and you can put enough sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere to lower the temperature at the surface by one degree Celsius average. 
and evenly distributed around the planet so you don't get, you know, spotty cooling, you get global cooling. Um, the, the, the less noxious one, and I choose my words carefully here, um, involves spraying low-lying maritime clouds with a fine mist of seawater to thicken them up. And this is less difficult than it sounds because there is a layer of, of cloud. It's called maritime stratocumulus, um, which covers about a quarter of the world's oceans at any given time, and it's low. It's between one and 200 meters above the ocean surface. I mean, I, I used to be in various navies, and you were under this stuff a lot of the time. You can see through it quite often. You know, it's, it's rather like ground fog, except it's above your head. Um, forming, dissipating, reforming. Now, what you do is you get, you build yourself fleets of unmanned, wind-powered, satellite-directed vessels, maybe a kilometer separation between them, which sail into the areas where the clouds are and spray a fine mist of seawater about 10 meters into the air. They don't have to blast it up 100 meters. And then, you know, sea-level turbulence will carry much of it up into the clouds where it will stick, thicken the clouds, and they will reflect more sunlight. That's plan B. Nobody's tried it any more than anybody has seriously tried the stratospheric thing. The only reason we can be reasonably confident that the stratospheric sulfur dioxide works is that that is actually what volcanoes, big volcanoes, do when they explode. I mean, when Pinatubo exploded in 1991, it pushed about a half a megaton of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, and the next two years we had a half a degree Celsius cooler average global temperature. So we, we sort of know it works, and people weren't falling over dead in the streets, but we'd still like a lot further experimentation before we buy into this. So there is going to be a huge political fight over the next years about whether these guys are going to be allowed to experiment on a local scale with the techniques that they believe we will desperately need. Not to solve the problem, because it doesn't solve the problem. You've still got the oceans acidifying. You've still got um, a, a, a widening gap between what the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere stands at and the temperature that you're artificially keeping low. And if for any reason you interrupted that process of, you know, geoengineering a cooler planet, you would then have a sudden rise in temperature that would probably kill every crop you planted. But as a way of buying time, if we aren't on the schedule, the track we should be for getting our emissions down, this could give you 20 years. The 20 years we should have used between 1990 and now, and you don't get them back, except maybe you could steal them back if you geoengineered for 20 years. So that's the context in which this is being approached. First the good news. No, sorry. First the good, bad news, then the worst news, then some good news. But there is a fourth and final observation, which is back to the bad news. Geoengineering is cheap. The process of putting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, for example, I told you how they think they would do it, a dozen aircraft, uh, um, three missions a day for a year. They costed it out. It cost a couple of billion dollars, which is chicken feed for government. It means that it's not just the Russians and the Americans and the Chinese who can do this. Bangladesh can do it and is much likelier to want to do it early in the game than any of the above. 
so that there is a seed of discord in the very possibility of geoengineering which could bring states, including great states, into conflict. I think I should stop now, don't you? (laughs) If I had any more bad news, I'd cut my own throat. Um, But I will say this, having gone through all this, um, and I'm still going through it, the latter, the last topic is what I'm doing at the moment. I'm doing research for Peace for Harper's on that. Um, But having gone through this for two or three years now, I'm actually a little bit more optimistic than I was at the start which must may just tell you how pessimistic I was then. But, no, I mean, there are ways through this, uh, which we may or may not manage to take. Uh, we're going to take casualties, too. I think that's certain. But the kind of six degrees hotter, mass dieback, half a billion human beings clinging to the shores of the Arctic are the only vestiges of civilization left, the kinds of thing Jim Lovelock has resigned himself to, are not necessary consequences. They're just possible consequences of the current crisis. Thank you. No, I realize that. Now, you're, this is why, if possible, some limited experimentation would be desirable before anybody feels compelled to jump in with both feet. And that was one of the things that came out repeatedly in this conference about the governance of, of research. They actually held it at uh, the same place, Silomar, which is where the, uh, the gene splicers first held their conference on how do we manage the research here. Let us write the rules before Congress does it for us and give them a template. It was the same game again with the geoengineers uh, last spring. Um, But they were very aware um, that they don't fully understand the system and that it isn't linear and that interventions, it's like pushing a spinning top. It doesn't necessarily go in the direction you pushed it in. Um, So early small-scale experiments uh, would add a little bit to the confidence levels, but there's really no way of being confident when you do it on a large scale that you won't get something else. you know, okay, uh, how desperate do you have to be before you go ahead and try? And the answer is when you're standing up to your knees in water starving to death, which is Bangladesh. I actually spoke to the guy who runs the Bangladesh Institute for Strategic Studies. You didn't know there was such a thing, did you? And I said, have you been thinking about geoengineering? He said, we think of little else. It's very the, – the guys who you'd expect, all the usual suspects are onto the case. I mean, there, there are so many components going into what the average global temperature is that you just fiddle with one of them, like getting your acid rain out of the system by cutting on your low-level pollution, and you get a sudden jump in temperature, indeed. And now the legislation in place is going to give us a further jump. Uh, Europe is really cleaning its act up. Um, I had a a fascinating conversation with um, uh, a guy called, it's not Schickelgruber, but it's um, the head of the the Potsdam Institute, um, Schellenhübel, about this subject. And 
I said, you know, how are you going to deal? You know, he was offering us, offering fairly woolly uh, suggestions about how you might actually get emissions down on a rapid enough schedule to avoid going past two degrees of warming, or at least go avoid going past 450 parts per million. And I was, you know, quoting him numbers that come out of various other reports that suggest 550 is a, a likelier stopping point by far if you look at current trends. Um, and then we got onto this whole question of uh, pollution and as a sunscreen. And, of course, pollution in the troposphere, historically, as a sunscreen. And uh, we had this bizarre, almost surreal conversation where he began to explain that where his optimism really came from was that as the Western European and North American countries cleaned up their pollution, the Asian countries would take up the slack and put enough brown shit in the sky that it would block incoming sunlight there and give us more time to get our emissions down. Oh, yeah, right. Um, but it may be true. Um, the, uh, the the folks who were throwing iron filings off the sterns of ships were all basically venture capital outfits. And I don't think that the experimentation they did was very scientifically valid. Um, and uh, basically they were just trying to create algal blooms such as you get when, you know, dust, iron-rich dust blows out over the oceans, which it doesn't do as much as it used to because the Chinese, particularly Pacific, because the Chinese have changed the kind of crop cover they've got on their land. Um, but uh, the, 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 the general approach uh, to, uh, to, to basically clawing your way back down from 550 parts per million, if that's where you ended up, and, you know, you're, you're geoengineering your way across the tightrope and managing not to have runaway warming and the permafrost hasn't melted, how do you get that, you know, get down below 450, maybe 350, if you believe Jim Hansen, which I do. Um, and I don't think you do it with just carbon sequestration in the oceans. You can get about 50 parts per million out if you allow the half of all the tropical forests that we've cut down over the last century and a half to grow back, which it will do pretty quickly on its own if you actually let it. Um, Biochar is a, a bit of an unknown quantity, but a very promising one in terms of sequestration. I mean, you just take your crop residues, um, you turn them into a kind of charcoal, plow them into the soil, and sequester all of that carbon, which would otherwise burn or rot and put all the carbon dioxide back into the air. So you know, how do you get 200 parts per million out? And the answer is not easy. Um, but the first 100 is probably doable, which would take you down to 450. And, and you do have a certain leeway in the sense that the consequences of a heightened concentration of carbon dioxide in the air tend to lag by about 20 years, the actual insertion of that carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So you, you've got some room, there was some wiggle room there. Not a lot. I don't like going that close to the edge, but that's where it is. Yes, sir. I think that, I, mean, I don't know if this applies to your particular situation, but the general problem, as I see it, of getting deals between developing and developed countries on anything to do with climate change is that we 
in the developed countries have to acknowledge our historical responsibility for the problem, which is not yet on the table. We wouldn't do it at Copenhagen, which is why Copenhagen broke down. Ninety percent of the crap that's up there now was put there by a relatively small number of Western countries, developed countries. We didn't mean any harm, but we did it, and we left no room in the atmosphere for them to come up the ladder the way we did because their emissions added on top of ours. Screw everybody. So the deals that can be made have to acknowledge that, which means actually that what, what was being discussed but never got done at Copenhagen was a deal where the old developed countries would first of all take deep cuts, really deep cuts, like 40% in 10 years in their emissions while the developing countries would at best cap their emissions about where they are now. Even having done that, the developed countries still wish to get rich. They want to develop. And so now they're trapped into a situation, since they've agreed to cap their emissions, where all of the new power generating capacity they put in has got to be non-emitting, has got to be carbon free. It's more expensive. Who pays the difference? And the answer is the developed countries do. Now, until we have buy-in from the developed countries, and I must say this one is probably the biggest obstacle, to big cuts here and, you know, no cuts, but maybe they cap it in China and to shipping $100 billion a year so that they can go on developing their economies with clean power. Now, the $100 billion was on the table verbally at Copenhagen. I mean, all of this stuff, most of the people at Copenhagen knew that if there was going to be a deal, this is what it would look like, but it didn't get done. Because basically even the politicians who do understand it, and I think Obama does, for example, cannot possibly do this until the public understands it. And the public is a long way from understanding it. Thank you very much. And that was Gwyn Dyer, a talk given about uh, seven, eight years, eight years ago at Harvard. Of course, Paris hadn't happened. That was 2015. Uh, Poland hadn't happened. So what I'm going to do now is read a few articles that uh, Dyer has written since then to give you a bit of an update so I'm going to take an article from uh, the uh, the Telegram in the UK, written uh, published on December 22nd, 2018, so in other words, just before Christmas a few months ago. This is Gwyn Dyer again. Global warming is physics and chemistry, and you can't negotiate with science for more time to solve the problem. More emissions mean a hotter planet. Dealing with the problem, however, requires an international negotiation involving almost 200 countries. In big gatherings of that sort, the convoy always moves at the speed of the slowest ships. That's why the reporting on the UN uh, climate change conference in Poland that ended December 15th, two days later than planned, has been so downbeat. It didn't produce bold new commitments to cut greenhouse gas emissions. It saw the usual attempts by the biggest fossil fuel producers, the United States, Russia and Saudi Arabia, to solve the process. And it ended and in the end, it just produced a rule book. But that's all it was supposed to do. And it's not just rule book. The great breakthrough at the Paris conference three years ago saw every country finally agree to adopt 
a plan for emissions reductions, but the Paris Accord was merely a sketch, only 27 pages long. Fleshing it out, what the plans could cover, uh, how often they should be updated, what countries could measure uh, and how and report their, or how countries could measure and report their emissions, how much leeway should be given to poor countries with bad data, was left to later. Uh, later is now. And in the end, they did come up with a 256-page rulebook that fills in most of the blanks. We have a system of transparency. We have a system of reporting. We have rules to measure our emissions. We have a system to measure the impacts of our policies compared to what science recommends, said uh, the European Union's climate commissioner, Miguel Arias Cante. It was an excruciating process, and it still leaves a few things out, but it settled a thousand details about how the Paris deal will work out. Anyway, and one big thing, China abandoned its claim that, it, uh, that as a developing country, it should not be bound by the same rules as rich countries like the United States. There will only be one set of rules for both rich and poor countries, although the really poor ones will get a lot of financial and technical help in meeting their commitments. The rise of populist nationalists like Donald Trump and Brazil's uh, Jair Bolsonaro, both climate change deniers, will make future negotiations even harder. This year's conference dealt with the details at a ministerial level. Next year, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guertes will hold a summit of the biggest emitters to lay the groundwork for the key 2020 meeting. That's when countries will report if they have kept their 2015 promises on emission cuts and hopefully promise to make uh, much bigger cuts over the next five years. The rise of populist deniers like uh, uh, Donald Trump and Brazil's Yahira Bolsonaro, both climate change deniers, will make future negotiations even harder. It's all moving far too slowly, but the human factor keeps getting in the way. For example, Bolsonaro wants Brazil to get extra carbon credits for protecting the Amazonian rainforest, even as he plans to carve the forest up with big new roads and cut a lot of it down. The Paris deal is important. But it's come up far too late to stop the average global temperature from rising to the never exceeded target of plus two degrees Celsius that was adopted many years ago, let alone the lower target of 1.5 Celsius that scientists now believe is necessary. We are already at plus one degree and current promises of emission cuts will take us up to past plus three degrees. At the moment, emissions uh, are still going up by 3% this year. Even if countries make further commitments to cut emissions by 2020, it's hard to believe that we can avoid devastating heat waves, droughts, floods, and sea level rise with sharp fall in global food production. So, while we're cutting emissions, we also need to be working on ways to remove some of the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases we have already put into the atmosphere. Various ideas for doing that are being worked on, but they will probably become available on large scale much too late to keep the temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius. So, geoengineering, direct intervention in the atmosphere to hold down the temperature while we work on getting emissions down, will probably be needed as well. No one wants to do uh, SRM, solar radiation management, but uh, cutting the amount of sunlight reaching the planet's surface by just a small amount is technically feasible. It could temporarily halt the warming and give us the extra time we're probably going to need. We're getting into very deep water here, but we have no other options. If we had started cutting our missions 20 years ago, 
when we already knew where they were and where they would take us, such drastic measures would not be necessary. But that's not the human way. So we'll have to take the risks or pay the price. And that was written uh, just before Christmas of this year by Gwen Dyer. Uh, the one thing that came out in his talk just last week that was uh, that never I never, never really st- understood before is why is this two degrees Celsius rise so sacrosanct? Why is it such a line in the sand? Well, why not three degrees? Why not four degrees? Apparently, at two degrees Celsius, once we pass that, there's all sorts of uh, feedback loops in the natural world that kick in over which we have no control. For example. Uh, well, he used three as an example. Uh, one, the uh, disappearance of Arctic sea ice, which means the Arctic Ocean will continue to warm and, and therefore raise the temperature. The second one was the melting of the permafrost, because what that does is release methane gases, which in turn increase the average temperature. So that's a feedback loop. The the third one he mentioned, he said there were about 20 of them, he only explained three, is the uh, acidification of the oceans, whereby the small, micro, small, very small organisms cannot reproduce if the ocean becomes too acidic. And uh, as we've heard in the past, two out of every three breaths take uh, the oxygen we inhale comes from the oceans. Sobering stuff. Well, what I will do is place the links to these uh, articles uh, on the uh, Pines and Politics website along with the podcast when I upload it tomorrow. So uh, there's a few more I don't have time to read now. But sobering stuff and the podcast, as I say, is a few years old, but it's substantially the same as what we heard at Trent you know, on February 11th. Dyer is still um, a pessimist, yet he sees, as you've heard, these small windows of opportunity. The SRM, the solar radiation management, that will probably be an option. And I can recall only a few years ago, uh, environmentalist, environmentalist friends say, no, no, impossible. You know, we can't do that. Sacrosanct. Well, it appears now it's more in the cards. Anyway, uh, in any event, this has been our fourth program of the 2019 uh, winter season here on Trent Radio. Uh, please join us every second Tuesday at 9 at 92.7 FM on your dial. And if you miss us on the radio, you can always download the show the next day at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. And don't forget, we have a new Facebook page. Uh, just search for Pints and Percent or Pints and Politics Podcast, and you should find it. Also, you can search Pints and Politics A&D uh, Peterborough, and that'll also get you to the Facebook page. Until Tuesday, March 5th, when we will hold a panel on hockey, this is Bill Templeman.